The opinions and statements expressed in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of WWDB, its staff, or management. Good day, everyone, and welcome again to another edition of Boomer Generation Radio here on WWDB AM 860 here in Greater Philadelphia. And we are streaming live on www.dbam.com. This is your host, Richard Address, welcoming you to the Election Day version of Boomer Generation Radio. So hopefully all of you are have voted or, or will soon be on your way to vote uh, on this beautiful day. It's a great day here in Philly, perfect day to go out and vote. Boomer Generation Radio, also available to you on our Facebook page, Boomer Generation Radio on Facebook, and you can reach us at boomergenerationradio at gmail.com. And just a reminder that our shows are archived as podcasts on my website, jewishsacredaging.com. We're going to be right back with our first segment guest, Barbara Walvoord, right after this message from our friends at Kendall. Hi, this is Kendall staff member Sheila Sylvester. This portion of Boomer Generation Radio is brought to you by Kendall Outreach. Kendall Outreach serves the field of aging by raising public awareness of important health care issues of older adults. And it provides education and training in the development and implementation of comprehensive approaches to safe, individualized, long-term care practices. Kendall Outreach has been sharing Kendall's approach to quality care with consumers, advocates, providers, government agencies, and related organizations since 1989. To learn more, visit KendallOutreach.org. And welcome back to our first segment here on today's edition of Boomer Generation Radio. This is your host, Richard Address, and hopefully by the magic of electronics and pushing the right button, uh, Barbara, are you there on the line? I am here. Hi, welcome, welcome, welcome to Boomer Generation Radio. We're speaking with Barbara Walvoord, a resident of the Lathrop, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, committee, a community. Where is this? Where, you're in Massachusetts, right? Yes, in Massachusetts, in East Hampton. Ah, no, well, no, well, great oh. area, great area. And you are the chair of the Lathrop Community Land Conservation Committee. I am. I'm also a resident there. And so we want to explore this uh, and your journey and your, uh, as you say in uh, communication that you sent me, reinvesting your um, life after moving into the community around the area of land conservation and the environment. So I yeah. guess the first question that I got to ask you is uh, – your own personal journey. You, what got you into this awareness or this this wonderful word reinvesting your energy, dealing with um, the environment? What was that? What was that tipping point? I had been an English teacher in college, and had administered college programs to improve teaching and to help students learn in college. All my life I did that. I raised kids. I did the whole thing. I was very busy. And when I retired from that at age 75, which is now, (laughs) I have looked for another place to put my energy. At the same time, I've been living for several years now in the Lathrop community and beginning to engage in this work. So what I looked for after a very busy life in very busy organizations and in places where I interacted with the community in different ways, what I looked for was a place where I could invest my passion. 
something that would mean something to me and that would make a contribution. And what I wanted was something where I could use what I had learned across my career. And looking back, I know that one of the things I learned was that um, I have certain leadership strengths and weaknesses, and I could build on my strengths and find something that would minimize my weaknesses as a leader. Another thing that I looked for was what does the world need? So I decided to work in some way with climate change and the environment. And the third thing was what is ready to happen? So I looked in my community for something that had already a foundation. One of the mistakes I made early in my career was to spend too much time and energy on stuff that wasn't ready to happen. So for example, when I was in Baltimore, I started a program to help faculty members and K through 12 teachers in the whole Baltimore region to use student writing, to work with student writing in their classes. And I spent hundreds of hours and lots of passion on this project and it had a wonderful liftoff. But what I had known from the beginning and didn't put enough emphasis on was that at my own institution, there were two key administrators who were not supportive of this work. They didn't think it fit well with the institution. So in the end, I had to take that program and move it out to a different institution where it was valued in a different way. What I learned from that was <laughs> you can put all your passion into something, but if it's not ready to happen, then you better find something that is. So when I came to Lathrop, this was ready to happen. This land conservation project was ready to happen. You write that um, the, the the power or the 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 issue of the environment is um, should be or could be or can be uh, or is emerging as a major issue for baby boomers and obviously our children and grandchildren. Absolutely. So Absolutely. you know it is election day and. Um, <laughs> Rumor has it that this has been an issue in this last year and a half of uh, whatever this has been. Tell me how this is why, why this is so important and why baby boomers need to be very, very passionate about this issue of the environment. Mm -hmm. The statistic that we use coming from reliable scientific sources is this, and it tells the whole story. 96% of birds need insects, not just nectar or seeds, to raise their young. And 90% of insects eat only native plants. If you put that together, you see that if our native plants disappear, our insects disappear, our birds disappear, and it goes on and on up the food chain. The incursion of invasive species which crowd out our native plants and are doing so at Lathrop in spades and around the country, um, the, the um, incursion of invasives has been cited by government and other sources as the second most important contributor species extinction after development. 
If you build a house on it, that destroys environment for animals. If you let invasive plants come in and destroy the native plants, you are likewise destroying environment for our native creatures. So, Barbara, talk to me, because you're involved in this, obviously, quite passionately, and, and you, you came to this, as you, as you remarked, to really be the, um, the let's just say, the, the uh, defining aspect of, of this stage of your life. Why, why do we still see so much denial or, as to the, the scientific evidence of climate change around not only this country, but really it's a, it's a, it's a global issue. Why, why are still so many people into the, no, this is all fabricated. This is not happening. You know, um, our religious traditions have pretty powerful explanations, don't they? About why this self-deception, deception of others, denial and evil in general, <laughs> are present in human society. So just as I think people are tempted to deny climate change because they don't want to deal with the enormous implications of what we would have to do if we were to take this seriously, just in the same way, on a smaller level, people tend to deny what is happening to our landscapes. Although, here at Lathrop, we have about 200 residents and in the three years that the Land Conservation Committee has been working, we have significantly changed public realization of, uh, among our own residents and to some extent more broadly in the, uh, in the valley. We have changed people's perceptions about how serious this is. So we have a total now of 28 of our residents. And don't forget, we're all older. Not all of us can get out there. But... Um, <laughs> 28 of our residents have donated more than a 1,000 hours getting out there in the field and pulling up invasive plants. We have raised money both from residents and also from four grants that we've gotten. So it is possible. I spent my life in education, you know, so I believe in education. It's possible to educate people and to help them see both how enormous and important the problem is and also something practical that they can do. And, and, and what, get, get, talk to me a little about this land conservation committee that you, that you had. You have these people, uh, in the, in the Lathrop community. What do they do? I mean, you're, you're saying they go out and pull up plants, but to somebody listening, you say, well, wait a minute, you know, so somebody goes out and spends a Sunday afternoon pulling up plants in the Pioneer Valley. How is that going to impact the environment? Every time we pull up a na uh, uh, an invasive plant and save some native plants, we help to enhance our environment for wildlife. So it's like poverty. It's like uh, any other catastrophe that we face in the world. Um, you can't solve the whole big problem. All you can do is to try to work in your own, in your own place in small ways that are possible. So we now have 50 acres. That's not so small, actually. We now have 50 acres of our land that for which we have raised money and also gone out there our own selves with our loppers <laughs> to remove invasive plants. And what the science tells us is that now our land will support 
up to four, seven, depending on the study you cite, times as much wildlife as it would if we had continued to allow it to be overrun by invasive plants. So that's our 50 acres. That's mm-hmm. uh, If a person can only do one acre, that's your one acre. If you can do your backyard, that's your backyard. And you simply work and try to do what you can in your own little space. That's basically what we're doing. So the committee both writes grants to fund this work. We get work days and we go out there and help with the work ourselves, but we also run programs to educate our own um, people here and some programs open to the public. So we have workshops, we have nature walks, um, we maintain a website, we publish a weekly column in the community newsletter so uh, we maintain trails and map out new trails with together with benches and signs. We are all about the land. So we're speaking with Barbara uh, Wolverd from the Lathrop community, uh, resident of the community, environmental activist, if I can use that term. And uh, we'll be back with our first segment here on Boomer Generation Radio right after this message from our friends at Kendall. Hi, this is Kendall resident Harry Hammond. This portion of Boomer Generation Radio is brought to you by Kendall, a system of not-for-profit communities and services that advocates for and empowers older adults to reach their full potential. Kendall is committed to working with others as we together transform the experience of aging. To learn more about Kendall, that's K-E-N-D-A-L, visit discoverkendall.org or call toll-free 888-759-0128. Welcome back to our first segment here on Boomer Generation Radio. This is your host, Richard Address, and we're coming to you from the studios of WWDBAM 860 here in Greater Philadelphia. And again, streaming live on the Internet at WWDBAM.com. We're speaking with Barbara Walvoord, environmental activist, activist a resident of the Lathrop communities in East Hampton, Massachusetts, talking about um, the environmental issues um, that face all of us and how to organize, basically, as Barbara has done, uh, committees, groups, activists. You speak, Barbara, this wonderful image of just one acre at a time or one backyard at a time. It's kind of an interesting image that if people, you know, instead of saying, oh, my God, well, what can I do about smog in Beijing or the Amazon forest in Brazil, maybe not anything, but I guess if what you're trying to educate people is if you just go outside in your own little environment and take care of your own little environment one step at a time, that that over the long haul adds up. Uh, Would that be a correct assessment? Exactly. There's an important book here called Bringing Nature Home by Douglas Tallamy. T-A-L-L-A-M-Y, which forms part of the basis for our work here. And Ptolemy's argument is that there are not enough wide, big, protected spaces, national parks and all that, for us to preserve nature in a way that supports wildlife. We've taken over so much of nature that now we have to provide that support. He cites a study of one chickadee mom trying to raise a nest full of youngsters. She needs several thousand caterpillars to do that. And there are many, many more caterpillars on the native trees and shrubs around her 
than there are on the non-natives. He actually had, I'm sure, his graduate students out there counting the caterpillars. So he documents how this poor mom has to fly past the invasive and alien plants to the native plants that will give her the caterpillars that she needs. That's what you can do in your yard. Plant one native tree. It will have a lot of caterpillars on it, and that will help your one chickadee. In, in your work, Barbara, in, in organizing the committee and doing educational programs as well as activist programs uh, in, in your community and in your area, and I know a little bit about the, the valley because it's a very activist-oriented valley, but what is what are what were the challenges? What are, what continue to be the greater challenges facing you and this group to try to get this idea out into the public? The challenge is that there are several challenges. One is to educate our both our own re, uh, residents and the general public. We've gotten four grants, and I've gotten lots of grants across my career. That was part of my job. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you write a grant that addresses an obvious need that everybody knows about, like poverty. If you're writing a grant to support um, a soup kitchen or a homeless shelter, people are generally familiar with this need. They know what it means. But it's, we're still at the place where I have to open every grant application with an explanation of why this is even a problem. So, so it, that's one of the big challenges. Even now, I mean, with, with I'm... Unless, even now, I mean, with all the publicity, with all the the, the changes in the climate and the weather, and yep. I mean, I have a colleague yep. um, who is writing extensively on. He, he happens to live in South Florida near the ocean and has been writing extensively recently on you know the the rise in sea levels slowly but slowly but surely, oh, yeah. and that again nobody seems to be. Uh, Aware or, or very few people seem to be aware of some of these climatic, I guess, is, and is it because even in the publicity is just so overwhelmingly large of an issue that people would say, oh my God, this is just, it's just too big for me to do anything? Is that part of the issue? That's part of the issue, but think now how many words in this presidential campaign have been devoted to issues like Hillary's emails and Donald Trump's sexist comments, and how many words have been devoted to climate change? Well, that's a whole other story. That's a whole other show. Yes. I mean, if you could so, add so, up the number of hours and minutes on name calling vis-a-vis actual substance, it wouldn't be much of a game. So, so what's happening is that the whole climate issue, which ought to be front and center in any election of our national leaders, is almost invisible, not not being talked about. And I'm sure the candidates would talk about it if the public demanded that they did. So, so we've got a, a general mass um, denial here of the nature of this problem and what it's about to do to us. Do you, do you see the need for, um, not, and this may be also a pipe dream, a real national um, task force on climate change, a real commitment on the part of the federal government, uh, even though that's, that scares a lot of people. Uh, but a, in order for this issue to really gain some, I guess, really substantive attention, doesn't there have to be a national commitment to this? There does. There has to be a national commitment. 
And some of the people talking about this now are talking in terms of the mobilization of the United States against the, the um, powers in the Second World War. How we mobilized, how fast we turned our plowshares into weapons <laughs> to go backwards um, <clears throat> on a biblical uh, quotation, but how fast we produce weapons, how fast we get people out there with boots on the ground, how fast we did planes, how fast we mobilized, and what sacrifices people made. They had their victory gardens, and they put up with limits on the sugar they could buy, and, uh, and all of that. People gathered to mobilize in a time of national crisis. And what people like Bill McKibben from 350.org and other important um, leaders are saying now is we need a similar mobilization now globally against climate change, and we're trying to create it, trying to bring it about. It's on a huge, huge scale, similar to what I and my colleagues here are trying to do at Lathrop, which is to stir people to understand the seriousness of a problem and to see what they can do to help. I, I mean, at the risk of being devil's advocate, um, do you think that it will take some sort of unbelievable natural catastrophe which is relevant or, or relatable to environmental change to wake people up? I mean, no, some... that's, a, that's a great question because um, Bill McKibben said one time somebody asked him, he's, he's the leader of 350.org. Um, which is what? The, which is what, Barbara? Because it's an organization you can um, people can get online and find it, but it is one of the citizen organizations that's mobilizing to try to address climate change. Bill McKibben is um, the head of it and a very well-renowned leader in this movement. And somebody asked him, "What's your greatest fear about the movement's success?" And he said, "My greatest fear is that there will not be." a single dramatic incident that galvanizes people to realize how serious this is. And do you think, do you personally, you personally, do you think that's what's sadly needed? I mean, some, you know, given our history in America, sometimes it does take a, a major catastrophe or life-changing event to really raise people to that awareness? Um, an event is only an event if people think it is a catastrophic event. So what you try to do in the climate movement and in some other movements as well, um, movements for civil rights and so on, is to try to, um, absent an event where someone bombs your planes in Pearl Harbor, you have to, ha- you have to create in people's minds a sense that these events are catastrophic. So by our statistics, about the 90% of birds that need caterpillars and other insects and the 96% of insects that only eat native plants, you have, to, you have to create, in a way, a galvanizing fact. Like an event is a fact. It doesn't have to be an event. It can be a fact. You have to have a galvanizing fact that people say, whoa, we have to pay attention to this. Uh, so before we start running out of time in this segment, let me just, you know, the challenges I, I would imagine to you are so overwhelming and frustrating, and especially given the limited amount of re- – I mean, it is an allocation of resources issue on a budgetary level, for example, governmentally. Sure. 
And how do you how do you juxtapose when you go out and speak to people the expenditures of money on a federal program um, for environmental issues vis-a-vis, let's just say, Social Security or Medicare or a jobs program? You know, if somebody if somebody is needing that job and that money is going to go, they're going to aren't they going to say, I, I you know, forget the caterpillar. I need I need help. And how do you de- how do you begin to deal with it? And the birds die, then there is no food. And if there is no food, then there is no job. So what you try to say people to, to people is, we have to make hard choices about dividing our money between immediate needs and the deeper problems that are causing and will contribute even more disastrously to those needs. So Barbara Welvor from the uh, Lathrop communities in Massachusetts. Um, I, I I wish you continued success. This is a, a, a major concern, a major fight, and it is a fight uh, to raise awareness. As an educator, you know the challenges of trying to educate not only a classroom, but in this case, a community and, in truth, uh, perhaps an entire country. So um, thank you very much for, for really enlightening us and giving us some, some very interesting insights into your concerns and your work and continued good luck with the committee and uh, your work in uh, Massachusetts. And more equally, uh, thank you for joining us here on today's edition of Boomer Generation Radio. Thank you, Barbara. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Take care. Good luck. We will be back with our second uh, segment of today's edition of Boomer Generation Radio and our guest, Dr. Harvey Austin. Um, but since it is Election Day and it's a good day for Americana, I think our musical bridge today uh, will revert back to some good classical uh, American down-home country-type music. So here we go.
<laughs> Welcome back to our second segment now of Boomer Generation Rants. It's funky music there, man, for Election Day. It really is uh, good old classical American down-home country, country music. We are on WWDB here in Greater Philadelphia, AM860, streaming live to the known universe at WWDBAM.com. And a reminder that uh, you can reach us at BoomerGenerationRadio at gmail.com or like us on the Boomer Generation Radio Facebook page. And these shows are archived at www.JewishSacredAging.com. And we, uh, we are very happy to welcome to our second segment here, today's edition of Boomer Generation Radio, Dr. Harvey Austin, the author of Elders Rock, subtitles, Don't Just Get Older, Become an Elder. Uh, so, Dr. Austin, I hope you're there. Are you there? I am here. Hey, hey, good to I see am, you. Good, to, uh, good. Almost out of breath from uh, dancing to all that banjo music just before sitting down. Well, How listen, good to speak with you. And um, if I, you just emailed me yesterday or this morning just to confirm and everything that you just got off a, a, a honeymoon cruise. Is that correct? I yes. Uh, <laughs> my wife and I, our ages together are combined. They're 157 years old. We got married three months ago. I, I at the age of 80 and three at 77, and we took a big Mediterranean cruise, and we are still a little bit in jet lag. Well, <laughs> that's a heck of a cruise for three months. Anyway, congratulations. So, anyway, so let's let's talk about the book, Elders yeah. Rock, subtitled "Don't Just Get Older, Become an Elder." I would assume, uh, Harvey, that this is um, available on the Great God Amazon as well as bookstores. Am I correct on that? Uh, the Great God Amazon is the best place, or you could go to Amazon. Uh, Am- excuse me, eldersrock.com, but Amazon is probably the best and the easiest place. Okay, uh, let's get... If somebody wants to buy it, I'd recommend the hard copy rather than the downloadable version because you can make notes in it. Right. Um, Define, you use the word elder. It has a variety of meanings in a variety of different contexts. Harvey, you you use it all throughout the book. What's an elder to you? Okay, great. So first of all, I use elder as a capital E, and I use it as a noun rather than as an adjective, as an elder person. It's a, it's a lousy word, but it's really, I think, the best one we've got. Uh, it, just as adult and adulthood work, so we have elderhood and we are an elder. So I always use it with a capital because I mean something very, very specific. I'm not talking at all about uh, adults who simply get older. I'm actually talking about a completely different third stage of life than mere adulthood. And what characterizes an elder to you, as opposed to somebody who's, you know, you know, up in years? Somebody would say, "Well, he's an elder. He's 90." But but you you <laughs> as a now you this has a specific definition in, that you you refer to in the book. What is it? I, I would say it's. It, it's the embodiment of our natural third stage of life, which we've had for the 200,000 years that human beings have been on the planet. We only lost it a couple of hundred years ago. It's actually the time of wisdom. It's the time of compassion. It's the time of contribution. It's when, it's when you deliberately shift from the gettingness and the acquisitiveness of being an adult to the wisdom and longer time look down the generations 
of a person who actually you would look at and when you talk to you say, oh, that person is so wise. I wish I had them in my life for longer, something like that. What, and what, what motivated you to write this? Oh, this is a story I hate to tell because it makes me feel like, it makes me seem like such a jerk, but I'll tell it anyway. Um, I'm sort of a devotee of what I call the hypnagogic space. It's that place when you wake up in the morning and you're not quite awake and all of a sudden you get some very powerful thoughts. Well, I got a very powerful thought one morning. It says, bring back Elder. It's about three years ago. And I went, that woke me up. It's like, okay, great. What's an elder? Because I really didn't know. And uh, and the response was, well, write a book and then you'll know. So what I did was to go on. I was kind of impressed with this, as you might guess. And I went on to Google the word elder to see what I could find on, on Amazon. Mostly, and I only found a couple of books, most of which were written by Bill Thomas. There's a lot of other uh, books out there, it turns out. But it's basically about bringing back our third stage of life, the stage of, of wisdom, the stage that we had that with, when it was a woman, it was known as the crone, the wise old crone. Um, we've got a world right now that's run basically by adults without elder supervision. And uh, so our training ground for elder has been lost. Ordinarily, it was the family or the tribe, and that's the way we live for 99.9% of the time we've been on Earth, but we've lost family. So elders were once trained by five generations, Richard. They were trained by by your your grandparents, your parents, your peers, your children, and your grandchildren. Now, because of the breakup of the family, that training ground is lost, and with a little luck, you've been raised by some really bright parents. And without that luck... You've hardly been raised at all. You just kind of struggle through. So this is about my whole purpose in life is to restore elder as a natural and oh, eons long third stage of life. So is this why you, you write in the book that we, quote, we lost our critical third stage of life, unquote? I mean, you make that a big point in the beginning of the book that... I, I really do uh, yeah, make it a big point. Well, what does Something that mean? Happened. Harvey, what does it mean that we've lost we've lost our critical third stage of life when yeah. we're living longer than ever before in human history? Yep. Uh, what you say is true. Yes, we've almost doubled our life expectancy over the last 200 years. What I, what I really mean is this. We are the only species, Richard, that actually has three stages of life. The way every other species except for ours is set up is that they have a two stage, uh, two stages of life, adult and uh, child, or, if you will, uh, immature, uh, mature and immature. But let me, let me ask a question that I love asking groups. What is it? What is that bizarre thing? that the female does of every other species, except ours, when she can no longer produce offspring? And it's sort of a loaded question, so, so I'll answer it. She dies. Simple as that, she dies. We're the only species that has a significantly long period of life after childbearing. And that's got to be for something. 
our 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 uh, unit of family, in contrast to all other species, is three. We actually have two generations that can actually raise our young, and our young stay immature for so long we really, really need it. But we've lost that because as technology has come in and we've gotten airplanes and wonderful medicines, and we can travel all over, and the kids are in California, except for the one that's in Aruba, and the grandparents have moved to Florida, and so forth. So the whole family has disintegrated you know, I'm talking in generalities. Of course, in many places that's not true. But as a generality, we've lost the training ground for elderhood, uh, and we've lost also uh, many of our rituals that would ordinarily take place in indigenous tribes to move from adult to elder, just as we've lost our rituals for when uh, children become adults. You know, the few remnants that we see are the equivalent of, you know, bar and bat mitzvahs, but they're not as powerful anywhere uh, as they used to be, my understanding. Well, did you think that there's this, um, I know amongst the boomer generation, even with baby boomer grandparents who may live far away, there is a real interest I'm picking up in my work of, of being very, very involved with grandchildren, almost to the exclusion sometimes of the, as the, of the parents, and really seeing a sense of responsibility, of legacy, of um, this involvement to trying to do what you're writing about. In essence, we don't they don't call it it being an elder, but being more of a role model and, and involved with those grandchildren, no matter where they. Because first of all, partly they even long distance, you can do it through Skype and uh, FaceTiming. I mean, as as limited as that is. But do you, see, do you see a sense that maybe even the baby boomers are beginning to re- revert back to a sense we really have to connect with these generations uh, because if we don't, we lose this 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 fabric of the family. Um, Richard, I I really understand that you do, and the more that I hang out with people who are interested in training others to live consciously, then I see that as well. But I have a feeling that you and I are both surrounding ourselves with people with that kind of wisdom and that kind of interest. But if I were to gather a group of teenagers together and uh, say, you know, how many of you uh, live with your grandparents? The, The number would be a heck of a lot less than if I'd asked this question in 1950. I agree with that. I agree with that. And so... I think we have to see it coming back. Otherwise, the worst of it is when we have a presidential election uh, like we have with the candidates that we have right now, neither one of which I think would be classified as having either the wisdom or the compassion of an elder. Yeah, that's well, <laughs> we'll find out tonight. Um, <laughs> yeah. You, you also talk about in the book um, this uh, the impact of culture. Uh, yes. Uh, on the conversations within the generations, is it? And, and you seem to intimate. Well, you don't intimate. I think you, you basically say it, especially in the middle of the book, that American culture still uh, has not come to understand or celebrate this concept of being an elder. We're still locked into a youth-oriented society. Is this part of the problem, Harvey? That you, that, that you're seeing that the, our culture itself does not celebrate the wisdom and the accomplishments of of aging? 
not only do I see it as part of the problem, I see it as the entire problem. And if, 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 so when you look at any lack of celebration of the elder, you know, in a given family, you really have to look at uh, what's the worldview of the town, what's the worldview of that nation. And ultimately we come down to we live in a very adolescent worldview that I would call you or me. And it's based on shortages and it's based on disconnection. Whereas elders thrive, and in fact, part of being an elder is the worldview of you and me. Now, the world we've got right now where we have all of this adversarial effect, a world where our economics is all based on uh, I, I, I've got more than you or I've got less than you uh, is really a very adolescent kind of thing. Hey, my whatever is bigger than your whatever. And that's very, very young. Um, I'm trying to think of, there's an author who, whatever he uh, speaks, he asks, and it's all over the world, asks his audience, he says, when you look at the culture that we have in our world, would you say it's that of a child, an adolescent, early adulthood, elder? And the answer is always um, early teenage. Yeah. So our, we've got a really useful culture. Do you see? Do you see this as well? Yeah. Well, I, I'm a little bit more optimistic because I do think. You know, as I go around, that that there is a beginning of a change amongst the boomers is for a variety of reasons. But there seems to be a point in some people's lives, and I haven't studied this, and maybe somebody will, that um, there's a transition that takes place between that mine is bigger than yours, I have to have more, to uh, I have enough, I really have to start worrying about what I want to leave leave behind. Yes, yes, I I do see that, and that's what I would call the first glimmerings of of elder and becoming an elder. And maybe Harvey, it's just taking a little bit longer for people to get to that stage because of the nature of the society, the economy, um, and how we live. But I guess I, I guess we'll see. Anyway, we're talking with Dr. Harvey Austin, the author of Elders Rock, subtitled Don't Just Get Older, Become an Elder, available on Amazon. And you're listening to Boomer Generation Radio here on WWDB AM 860 in Philadelphia and streaming live on WWDBAM.com. And we'll be right back with Harvey right after this message from our friends down the street here at Kendall. Hi, this is Kendall staff member Sheila Sylvester. This portion of Boomer Generation Radio is brought to you by Kendall, a system of not-for-profit communities and services that advocates for and empowers older adults to reach their full potential. Kendall is committed to working with others as we together transform the experience of aging. To learn more about Kendall, that's K-E-N-D-A-L, visit discoverkendall.org or call toll-free 888-759-0128. Welcome back to our second segment here on today's edition of Boomer Generation Radio. We're speaking with Dr. Harvey Austin, author of Elders Rock. Um, and push down the music there, there. <laughs> Thanks. 
Um, Harvey, in the middle of the book, uh, you know, obviously you, you, you're talking about some of your own story and you mention a gentleman by the name of Dean Wiggers as somebody yes. who is very pivotal in your life. Talk to me about this, con- this, this, this relationship. I met Dean Wiggers on my first uh, day of medical school uh, when I was 21 years old, and uh, he was the dean of men at Albany Medical College. And we were gathered together in the auditorium, and he got up to address us, and his address was very, very short. He looked at us, 58 men and two women, changed now, and said, gentlemen, you have a problem. And we looked at each other, terrified, thinking maybe they would close the school. And then he said, and the problem is this, 50% of what we're going to teach you is wrong. And then he smiled and said, unfortunately, we do not know which 50% it is. Gentlemen, have an interesting life. And he sits down. That altered everything for me because even when I was a teenager, I suspected that the Hi, can you still hear me? Yeah, I'm you're here, here, all right. Oh, very good. I suspected there was something wrong, like I'd been born in the wrong place at the wrong time. And that was felt to me like the first piece of truth I'd ever heard in my life. Yes, it has to be that way. These adults can't be all right about everything, especially when they say opposing things. So that was the first wake-up call, the first disillusionment that I uh, really went through. Made all the difference in the world. And so, like any elder, I guess he's uh, gave you the permission to think and to explore. And and you also write around the same part of the book something which which is fascinating. I need you to to talk us through this. The crack in the egg. What what is that? Oh my, that's a line from Joseph Chilton Pierce, who wrote a book called. The Crack in the Cosmic Egg. And here's my understanding uh, of it, is that we were born into a culture that we just assumed was perfect. Our, our parents were big, and everything they told us was right. But then we began to notice that there was something off, and there was this crack that began to appear in our reality, just like the dean actually spoke, hey, gentlemen, look, there's the crack. We don't know what we're talking about, but we sure are doing the best thing we could. It's And that opened it up. But then I stayed around in this culture, and, and I did all the right things, and I became I lived the all-American way, and I, and I got the A's, and, and I went into practice, and I did. I became, you know, the perfect model citizen, and it just felt terribly wrong, as though something was still pointing and saying, Hey, this cosmic egg that you believed in is cracked. There's something off here. So, and 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 how do you that? How do you translate? <clears throat> excuse me. How do you translate that crack in the egg concept into being an elder? Oh boy, that's real. Oh, what a great question that is. I would say that we have a huge belief system that elder. Excuse me. That adult is everything. Um, Dr. Uh, William Thomas, a gerontologist, writes about it, and he says, we actually have a cult of adulthood. Hmm. And we, when we look at it, 
say, you know, life is not supposed to work this way, where people fight one another, where we have to struggle to get a minimum wage, where we have all of the isms, you know, the racism, uh, the fem- the feminine, not feminism, but the patriarchy. We have a beautyism. In fact, I worked in the field of beautyism as a cosmetic surgeon for a long, long time. But this isn't the way life is supposed to live. I'm a commitment to a world that works for everyone, where every child is born, is nurtured and wanted, and and opportunities are placed in front of that child, girl or boy, where they can live up to their full potential. And that's what I see as a future for humanity. And in my view, we just ain't got that yet. So let me just shift gears here a second. one of the issues, I mean, you know, you, you talked about the, the, the wisdom of elderhood and being an elder and this, the journey of the third age and the exploration, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. But the reality is, as we all know, that um, as we age and if we're given the gift of life and allowed to live, you know, on, on this extended longevity period that we talk about and that we're observing – that each one of us will probably deal with uh, natural, inevitable types of losses. And sometimes they're not natural. Sometimes they're caused by disease. Sometimes they're caused by accidents. But they're, they're, they're changes, significant changes, as we become more and more aware of our own mortality. As the elder, as the, as the elder, and your definition of what that word means, how do you teach people to deal with the gradual, inevitable losses that may occur or that usually do occur as we age? Oh, what a really, really great question. So I'm just going to quote something that sounds a little screwy at first. Which lose in the tomatoes, you make up in the potatoes. Say that again? I said that. What you lose on the tomatoes, you make up on the potatoes. Okay, for, so explain that to a city boy. <laughs> Yeah, (laughs) I'm talking about uh, as my left knee hurts and as my strength wanes. I'm 80 years old, but I love being 80 because there's something that came in in my 70s that slowed me down. I was on automatic fast track. I'm a wiggler. I move uh, and I... I can no longer act as a young person. But as I become more aware of the limitations, and as I get closer and closer to the end of my life, something magnificent has come in. There's a spirituality that's come in. There's an appreciation. When I look at a leaf, I see a leaf now rather than something that's just in the way. Um, Here's the best news I could tell anybody as they're in their 60s and 70s, is that my 70s have been the best years of my life. I've never been so centered. I've never liked myself so, more, so much. I don't think of myself as the jerk that I once was. I can still do jerk. I'm very good at doing jerk. But it's not a big thing. I no longer am addicted to the comfort and the delight of having the perfect-looking body and the smoothest face and the healthiest feeling knees something else happens and that really you know we have um 
there's a passage in the Bible that's uh, Genesis 12 that talks about Abraham's being called to go forth. And one of the commentaries of that is really not necessarily going outwardly, but going inside oneself to really become centered and focused. And I think that's part of being what an elder may be in your definition uh, to really yes. understand one's own exactly. self. Yes, exactly. And Shakespeare said it too. He said, to thine own self be true, because then it shall follow as night follows day, thou canst be false to no man. But you've got to be true to yourself. Yeah, which is... And I don't need to Yes. No, no. Uh, we're going to start running out of time. I want to. I want to explore very quickly because we only have a couple of minutes left in this segment. Um, towards the end of the book, and and you do, and and the, the second part of the book is really a, a talking about your training and the training that you do, uh, and elder training and some of the steps that are dealed with that. But talk to me in your definition of elderhood and being an elder, and now you know very active in your own life. What are the significant aspects and the importance in one's life of forgiveness, humor, and love? Oh, wow. Oh, that's a great question. Let me preface it for one sentence. And, and, and we tell, just say one sentence on how to become an elder. You stand in front of a mirror, you hold your hand up, and you look at that person and say, I am an elder. And you say it enough till the person looking at you in the mirror stops objecting. At that point, you have declared yourself to be an elder. Then you've got to go figure out what it is. <laughs> because the reality is you're going to be an elder in training for the rest of your life. There's no top of the mountain. Oh, and then once you do some reading about what elder, and once you start talking to other people that are elders, you begin to realize that anything that's unhandled in your past got to be completed that what happens is that you just naturally start forgiving uh, those people that you feel have hurt you, those people you feel have abandoned you. You begin to notice you, how important your word is because you said, I'm an elder, and that makes you an elder, and now you find yourself keeping your word and integrity starts swinging in big time. All of a sudden, you realize, oh, I'm not the jerk I thought I was. I'm valuable, I'm worthwhile, and I'm continually to train myself to be the best elder that I can be. Does that address what you asked? And very quickly, um, the role of you keeping a sense of humor and love. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> kind of goes like this. There's no exit. Nobody gets out of this life alive. But if you're not doing what you came here to do, and you may never find it by looking for it. You've got to declare it. And unless you're having some fun doing it, what the hell good is it? Elders have a real sense of humor. I, I don't know if you notice me. I'm sort of, I, I'm treating everything as though it's light because it is light. It's not heavy. It's not serious. And there's a certain akinness of elderhood to childhood as well because it incorporates it. But an adult can access access their inner child when, excuse me, an elder can do that, whereas an adult, very, very serious person like that. Right. And there's always, a, there's always a, my, my sense is, um, and I've been accused of this too many times, that you just can't lose your sense of humor because once you lose your sense of humor about life, uh, you're in really tr big trouble um, 
I think the word, I think the technical term is deep doo-doo. Deep doo-doo is a technical term. Yes, that is correct. It, it's embedded in the uh, Talmudic tradition of our people. There's a small text in there. We've been speaking with Dr. Harvey Austin here on today's second edition, second segment of uh, Boomer Generation Radio. Harvey's, uh, book, Elders Rock. Don't just get older, become an elder. Available on Amazon. Um, a, a very full and rich uh, meditation on the concept of becoming an elder and also the idea of training for one. So, Harvey, I want to thank you for being with us here on today's edition of Boomer Generation Radio. I wish you continued good luck and much uh, happiness and joy on your new marriage. And um, just take care of yourself. Stay happy and stay healthy. That's the most important thing. Thank you for being with us. To all of you, thank you for joining us on today's edition of Boomer Generation Radio. We'll see you next week. And don't forget, if you haven't already, go out and vote. Um, it's really important. Take care of yourself. Stay healthy, everybody. See you next week. Thank you.